Good morning. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm part of the team here. Welcome to Westgate. Really, really glad you're here. Everybody watching online, so glad you're joining us as well. Um, I want to begin by sharing a bit of uh, my story. When I first began serving in the local church almost 20 years ago, I started, I spent about eight years, almost 10 years actually, uh, serving specifically students, um, high school students and middle school students. So I was a, what you would call a youth pastor or a student ministry pastor. And it was a wonderful time, amazing time. Um, if you've ever served with students, it's life-changing, not just for the students, but for you. And I have such fond memories. And I have so many students that come to mind when I think about my years serving in uh, student ministries. There's one student in particular I think of often. His name was Darren. And Darren was a student uh, that came in as a freshman into our high school ministry. And right away I knew this kid was special. I mean, he was so quirky, so unique. And the thing that made him special, unlike most teenagers, he was just so relentlessly himself. And he was so incredibly comfortable in his own skin. Like he did not care about trying to be cool or popular or whatever. And in a weird way, that actually made him really, really cool. You know what I mean? Because he just didn't care. And um, he, he every week, every week for years at youth group on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, he would relentlessly invite me to join him for uh, something that was called LARPing. Anybody know what LARPing is? Yes, do we have some LARPers in the room? Raise your hand if you're a LARPer, it's okay. LARPing, if you don't know, was that a hand? Do you LARP? Amazing, okay, let me explain what LARPing is. Correct me if I'm wrong here. LARPing stands for live action role play. And this is when in a pre-pandemic world, every now and then you would drive on a Saturday morning by a park and you would see fully grown men and young adults wearing like medieval attire with toy swords and spears and they were just like bashing each other over the head, speaking old English. That's LARPing. And Darren was like so into it, you guys. He was like enamored with medieval mythology and Dungeons and Dragons and all of that stuff. And every week he would ask me, Jay, you gotta come LARPing with me. And sadly, I said no, every single time. Uh, I regret it. It's, it's one of life's greatest regrets that I didn't LARP with Darren. But, because, and I, I love this kid, and we had such a great relationship. And so, he, again, he was so into medieval mythology and all those sorts of things. We had this sort of like inside joke. It wasn't really an inside joke because it was just one way. Every time he would come up to me at youth group, he would come up to me and greet me in the old English, and he would say, my Lord, right? That's, he greeted me that way all the time. And it just became really endearing and fun. And I love this kid for it. And we would laugh about it. My Lord, every time. One particular Wednesday night, we've got our, you know, we used to gather our high school students on Wednesday night. There was like 50, 60 high school students. And then there was this group of students from a local high school, public school, who had come. There were like four or five of them who had come together because they had been invited by another student who was really involved in our youth ministry and he went to school with them. So they were his school friends, he invited them. And clearly these kids were not Christian, right? Like they, they, were, they were taking a massive risk showing up to a religious setting. They were like, they were not Christian, they were not religious, they just came because a good friend invited them to come. And so I see them, I recognize them, I start chatting it up with them. All I'm trying to do is help them feel comfortable. I'm trying to express to them like, man, we're so thrilled you're here. You don't have to be religious to be here. We're so 
glad you're here. It's not weird. I know you're nervous, but it's not weird. I'm just having this conversation. And then in the middle of this conversation with these non-Christian kids, Darren walks into the room, walks right up to me, and he says, my Lord. And then he walks away. And the looks on these students' faces is like, oh, we're going to die here tonight. This is, we just came to a cult. This guy's the cult leader. And it was just like the looks on their faces. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm so flustered. I'm like, that is not normal, you guys. It's okay. You're safe, right? Like, I'm just like trying to explain this to them. And uh, long story short, they, they stayed, and actually two of them eventually gave their lives to Christ. And, and they actually became really good friends with Darren, which was an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing. But I've been thinking about Darren a lot, I've been thinking about that story a lot in the last couple of weeks. Because if you were here with us last Sunday, you know that we started a brand new series called... I'm terrible with names. And uh, this is a series where we're exploring these various titles of Jesus. Lord is a title for Jesus. And if you've been around church for a while, if you read the Bible or you sing these worship songs that we regularly sing week after week, um, we often forget how on the surface strange these titles are. Like we don't typically call other people things like Lord. Or last week, Dave Tish taught about the word, the word. Jesus is called the word. I mean, these are really strange on the surface. But because we're used to them, we just don't give them much thought. But maybe there are some of us sitting in this room or watching online right now who are like, man, I kind of feel like those new students. Like when we sing those songs, they're really beautiful and they're very moving, but I don't quite understand all the language and all these different words you use to describe God or to describe Jesus. And even if you're not new to Christianity or new to religion or faith or the Bible, even if you've been following Jesus for many years, maybe many decades, the reality is when we really sit back and think about it, we use these titles to reference Jesus but we really don't quite understand why. Now, this is true for me. I think this is true for many of us. And so last week, again, Dave talked about the Word. And today, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Son of Man. The Son of Man. To do this, uh, I want to show you an image to begin. This is a photograph of a place in Los Angeles called, get ready, the Pink Wall. It's like not the most creative title. It is a pink wall called the pink wall. The pink wall is the exterior of the Paul Smith clothing store on Melrose Avenue. Anybody ever been to the pink wall? Some of you have. Yes, one person. There we go. Okay, so if you don't know the pink wall, the pink wall is one of the most popular Instagram tour destinations on the planet. And by Instagram tour, I mean, people, this is real. You can pay money to have handlers take you around the world to hot spots for Instagram selfies. The pink wall, which is literally just a pink wall, the exterior of the Paul Smith clothing store on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles, the pink wall has about 60,000 visitors a year from all over the world. And over 100,000 uploads to Instagram every single year. This is almost 300 photos, almost all of them selfies, at this location every single day. The pink wall. 
a filmmaker named Nick Bilton who uh, created this um, documentary that came out last year called Fake Famous, really fascinating. He describes the pink wall this way. He says, essentially, the reason the pink wall is so popular is because likes, and he means like social media likes, the heart button, likes translate to more followers, which is the current currency of the most important thing on earth today, what everyone seems obsessed with, being famous. Maybe you've read some of the data, but in a recent survey amongst um, high schoolers and middle schoolers, when they were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, the number one answer was famous, which is not really a job, right? That's just kind of a weird state of being. But that's what, and this is, listen, you guys, this is not like some sort of bashing of Gen Z, not at all. It's actually in many ways not even really their fault. We have just curated a digital culture in which notoriety and fame and popularity and elevation of the self has become just like the air we breathe. Listen, maybe you are listening to this right now and you're like, well, I'm not chasing social media fame. I don't care about that. And that's fine. My guess is that for most of us, that's not really an issue. For some of us, it is. But for most of us, that's not really an issue. But even if you're not chasing fame on Instagram or whatever, maybe you are familiar with the frustration of feeling like you're unseen or unrecognized or going unnoticed in your social circles or at work or maybe even in your own home or here at church. You feel like there are others who are sort of elevated above you and you're just kind of down in the dumps going unnoticed, unseen, unrecognized. Maybe you're not chasing fame, but maybe you are familiar with that temptation inside of you to recklessly and relentlessly climb up the corporate or career or social ladder, stepping on whoever it is you need to step on to elevate yourself. Maybe you're not trying to get famous on Instagram, but you are probably familiar with the allure of the humble brag. Right, trying to subtly prop yourself up as someone important, someone who matters. Again, this is just the air we breathe. In an age of noise and self-promotion, though we think intellectually of humility as a virtue, the reality is for most of us, we live our lives as if humility is actually a vice. We live in a culture where Uh, the public figures who most grab and hold our attention and even our allegiance are almost always the loudest and the brashest. We see this again all over social media, news media, politics, celebrity culture. It's all over the place. If you want to be seen, if you want to be noticed, if you want to be heard, if you want to be great, if you want to be elevated, you have to self-promote. You have to create noise. You have to be loud. Again, this is the cultural air we breathe. Now, this temptation toward elevating ourselves, this temptation toward seeking self-fulfilled greatness, this temptation toward climbing whatever ladders we have to climb to be noticed by society and culture as somebody noteworthy, this temptation has been around for a very, very long time. This is not new to the 21st century Western world or the digital age or the internet. 
This has been around since the earliest days. The only difference is that in the ancient world, culture was just way more honest about it than we are today. Today, again, we like to believe that humility is a virtue, but the way we live our lives, we live as if it's a vice. But in the ancient world, they just named it. They actually said humility is a vice. Humility is not a good thing. Why would you want to be humble? It's not helpful. One historian, uh, Edwin Judge, he says it this way, that humility in the Greek and Roman ethics of the day of Jesus, humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing. To put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. There was no virtue in it at all. At the time of Jesus, you guys, humility was not valued. In the world of Jesus, the Greco-Roman world of Jesus, this is vitally important, humility was not something people aspired to. Humility was something that was considered disgraceful. In the ancient Greco-Roman world of Jesus, the climb up the, the social ladder or the career ladder and stepping on whoever you needed to step on to make yourself great was actually considered a virtue. And they just named it in ways that we refuse to name today. They just said, humility is a joke. Why would you ever be humble? It's embarrassing, it's degrading, it's disgraceful. And we see this in particular prominently in a very specific ancient world title that people would pursue. But it is not the title we are exploring today, which is Son of Man. We'll get to that in a moment. It was in fact the title, the Son of God. Now, we're familiar with this title, Son of God, because it is, in fact, in the Bible, and Jesus is, in fact, referenced as the Son of God. But here's what you need to know. The phrase, the Son of God, was not originally connected to Jesus. The phrase, the Son of God, the title, the Son of God, was a very common title in the ancient world before Jesus was born. And in particular, it was a title that inferred deity. So the son of God, if somebody called themselves the son of God, what they intended to mean was that they were gods. If I said, I am the son of God, it was a public declaration that I am more than human, that I am above you, that I am beyond you, that I transcend your lowly life and reality, that I am something more, that I am in fact a god. That was what the title inferred. We see this all over sort of the Greco-Roman Empire. In fact, I'll show you a coin. This is a first century coin that was around at the time of Jesus. And the face you see on that coin is the face of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome shortly before Jesus was born. He took the throne. And on the back side of the coin, you see some Latin lettering there. And the Latin letters spell out the words, the Latin phrase, DV Fivulus, which actually means son of God. 
Son of God was a phrase that was popular amongst Caesar, the emperor of Rome, and it was popular amongst all earthly kings and emperors, going all the way back to even like Pharaoh in Egypt at the time of Moses. Calling yourself son of God was a common practice in the ancient world, particularly amongst ancient kings and emperors. In fact, here's an example of a common inscription you would find in cities and towns all over the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. To the emperor Caesar, God, son of God, Augustus, he has been declared God of the Roman state. You saw this all over the place. Earthly kings and emperors would time and time again declare themselves sons of God, essentially proclaiming to the world, I am more than human. I am above you lowly peasants. Therefore, adore me, worship me, long to be like me, son of God. This was the go-to phrase for earthly kings and emperors at the time of Jesus and long before. Now, what's really fascinating is that if there was ever a person on the planet who had a rightful claim to the phrase son of God, to that title, if there was ever one person who could rightfully declare, no, 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 I am truly the son of God, it would have been who? Jesus. And yet, When Jesus refers to himself in the scriptures, in the biographies of Jesus, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, son of God is really, really rare. Jesus instead chooses a a different title as his favorite go-to title when describing himself. And it is the title, son of man. This phrase, son of man, is referenced by Jesus more than 80 times in the Gospels. 32 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 26 times in Luke, and 10 times in John. Across the board, in every biography of Jesus, in all four of them, Jesus over and over and over again describes himself not as God or the son of God, but rather as the son of man. What's really fascinating about this is that the phrase son of man, that title, you know what it really means? In the Hebrew, it is the phrase ben adam, which literally means son of Adam. And what son of Adam actually means, those of you who are somewhat familiar with the Genesis story, you know that the name God gives to the first human, Adam, Adam, is not really a proper name. It is now in today's day and age. But back then in Hebrew, you know what Adam means? Just man or earth or dirt. You guys, this is so blue collar. Son of man literally means son of a man, like just son of a human. It's a title and a phrase that literally means human being. Let me show you. There is, I'll show you a slide here, a graphic. There is Jesus who is actually the son of God. Yes? 
Now, maybe you don't believe that. You're new to Christianity. You're just exploring. You're not a Christian. That's okay. We're thrilled you're here. You don't have to believe this. But Christians believe that Jesus is the true son of God and God himself. Now, earthly kings and emperors are actually just sons of men. They're just humans like you and me, yes? So Jesus is actually the son of God and earthly kings and emperors are actually just sons of men. But what you see in the ancient world and what you see in the life of Jesus is this, that earthly kings and emperors driven by pride try to ascend to son of God status by taking the title. And what you see in Jesus, the actual son of God, God himself, three in one, Trinity, all of that stuff, what you see is that Jesus, who is actually the son of God, rather than pursuing that title, instead in humility, descends or condescends and takes upon himself a title that is on the surface totally unfitting for him. Son of man, a human. Just a normal dude. I mean, that's a good modern translation. Son of man is just like dude. Just like, it's just a guy. We see this in places like Philippians chapter 2. What does Paul say? He says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does the title son of man tell us? It tells us so much, but this is one of the most important things it tells us is that Jesus chooses to empty himself and to humble himself. He is not forced to do this. He is not coerced to do this. He is not manipulated to do this. Jesus of his own free will chooses to empty and humble himself. One theologian, Michael Gorman, he says that this is Jesus's resume of shame. Because in the ancient world, again, humility was shameful. It was not a virtue, it was a vice. But it is in fact this shocking humility of Christ that ends up drawing so many people towards him. And it is in fact Christ's example of self-giving love which elevates humility from vice to virtue in Western culture at large. Did you know this? You can Google this. Scholarship after scholarship. Secular scholars will tell you this. That it is in fact Jesus... And the way he chose humility that changes the trajectory and the course of the way people understand humility in the Western world. The reason you and I consider humility a virtue today, whether you're a Christian or not, is because of Jesus. This is the big, broad, looming shadow of Christ across history. He himself, Jesus himself, puts it this way, Matthew chapter 20. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
One theologian and pastor, John Dixon, he describes it this way, that for the early Christians, the crucifixion, Jesus giving his life on the cross, was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation, but proof that greatness can express itself in humility. The noble character, the noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others. Throughout the scriptures, we find clues of this sort of upside-down nature of humility. In fact, long before Jesus arrives on the scene, we see this title, Son of Man, used in fascinating ways to describe a human who would eventually arrive to be revealed as so much more than human. We see hints and clues of this all throughout. Let me show you one prominent example. About 600 years before the birth of Christ, a man named Daniel has a vision of these wild, fantastical beasts, like these dragon-like characters that are evil and vile. And in his vision, these, these beasts, they represent earthly oppressors and the evil powers of the day and the chaos of the world. And in the midst of these beasts, which represent earthly powers and oppressors and chaos in the world, Daniel has a vision of a son of man. It says this, Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, a human, a dude. Right? Okay, but what does this dude do in the vision? Totally jarring. Coming with the clouds. He approached the ancient of days and was led, that's God, and was led into his presence. He, the son of man, this dude, just this blue-collar dude, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel has a vision of all of these earthly powers trying to battle and wage war to climb up the ladder to son of God status. And in the midst of that, he has a vision of the son of man, a guy, a human, a dude. And this dude comes in and he is given power and authority and rule. And he vanquishes all of the beastly powers of the earth. This son of man, this humble human is revealed to be so much more than human. In fact, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, a man named John has another vision. And he writes it down in a book that we call Revelation. And in this vision, in John chapter 14, he sees this. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. But with what? A crown of gold on his head. The title son of man does not simply mean, well, Jesus isn't really God. He's just a dude. No. It is a way that Jesus reveals to us the sword of God or the sword of king he is. 
The phrase son of man in the Bible is a phrase that just means a person, a human. It's a lowly, blue-collar, mundane, humble phrase. But it is in that humility that the title through Jesus is elevated to become something far greater than just an ordinary human being. In other words, Jesus uses the term son of man to describe himself precisely because it reveals the sort of extraordinary king that he is. A king who intentionally empties and humbles himself for our sake and in doing so is actually elevated above all the rest. Is actually the sort of king who actually deserves our attention, our affection, our devotion, our adoration, and our allegiance. Again, Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then Paul continues, therefore, God also highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Son of man does not mean Jesus is just another dude. Son of man means that Jesus is the only king worthy of our adoration, affection, devotion, and allegiance. Because unlike all of the earthly kings and empires of the ancient world and of our day, Jesus does not need to step on others to climb the ladder. Jesus is so powerful, he is so all-consuming, he is actually God in such a way that he comes down the ladder to us and lifts us up with his might and his love and his grace. This is what son of man means. So what does that mean for you and for me as Christians? The very beginning of Philippians chapter 2, the, the passage, the very beginning of verse 5 tells us, Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is why the title Son of Man means so much for us today. Because if Jesus is that sort of king, we, made in his image, living the way of Jesus, are to be those sorts of people. In a culture that calls us to make noise and chaos, um, to be outlandish and to be loud so that we can be noticed and seen and recognized, to live the way of Jesus is to live the way of humility, the humility of the Son of Man. Again, John Dixon is helpful here. He says that humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. So why is the Son of Man title important for us? Because it reveals to us that if we commit our lives to following Jesus, we are committing our lives to following the Son of Man, God who came down to be with us in order to elevate himself as the true king of the universe. And if we are to live like Jesus, we too are to come down rather than to constantly climb up, stepping on others to do so. This looks like giving up our status. It looks like giving our resources. 
And it looks like using our influence for the good of others before ourselves. This might be hard for you guys to believe, but when I first started school in first grade, I never went to kindergarten. When I first started school, I did not speak a lick of English, not a single word. I mean, like maybe hi or sorry or where's the bathroom or something. But I could not hold a conversation in English. Um, some of you know I was born in South Korea and then I moved here when I was really young. But my mom was a single mom and so she just left me at home with my aunt. And my aunt didn't speak any English so all I spoke at home was Korean. And then all of a sudden I turned six and then they're like, well, you're six, you got to go to school. And they just send me to Summerdale Elementary School. And my first day, I kid you not, I could not speak a single word of English. And it was the most humiliating and sad and depressing few weeks, my first few weeks. And every day I would walk to school by myself. I would sit in class and not understand a thing that was happening. So I was just like getting zeros on everything, although my teachers were really, you know, gracious. And then at recess, I just sat alone watching other kids play because I didn't know how to interact. I didn't have language. And then about two, three weeks into school, I'm walking home one day, and there was another group of kids who lived in the same sort of um, apartment complex where I was living with my mom and my aunt and uncle at the time. And I would see these same kids walking home every day, like in a group, you know, they were all friends, and I couldn't understand anything they were saying, but they looked like they were having a great time, and I would always just trail a few yards behind them walking alone every day to school. And then this kid named Stephen, remember, we're six years old at the time. This kid named Stephen, one day, about two, three weeks into this, trails back with me. And he was really tall, which some things have not changed. And, uh, you know, it's like Mark reminds me of Stephen. And... Um, <laughs> I was just standing next to this towering giant of this kid, and I was so, I, like, I thought he was going to fight me or something. I was so nervous. And he starts talking to me, and I did not understand what he was saying, but I could tell by the look on his face that he wasn't, he wasn't picking a fight with me. He was trying to lean into me. He was trying to befriend me. He was asking me about me. And we couldn't talk. Like, I didn't know what he was saying. Obviously, he couldn't understand Korean. He didn't know what I was saying. But after that, every day, for several weeks, at lunch, he would find me and sit with me. And then after school, he would walk with me. And I still, I couldn't speak English, but we're just like building this strange friendship. And the strangest thing happened, you guys. Um, eventually, he started teaching me about like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Because I was just bringing like Korean food. Now, if you reverse that today, you're like the cool kid if you bring Korean food to lunch. But this was not the case in 1985, right? Like, it was embarrassing for me to have, so, and he was like, teach, he was sharing his PB&J with me, which was life-changing, you know, life-changing experience. What is this manna from heaven, you know? It's like, America is the land of whatever, you know, and, um. And then, so he was just sharing his resources with me, and he was letting go of his status with his friends to linger with this kid, this immigrant kid that couldn't speak a lick of English. And then all of a sudden, over time, several weeks in, as we were walking home, his, his friends, who he had left behind to linger with me, began to linger behind. And he used his influence 
to allow me to enter into his circle of friends. I moved a lot when I was a kid. And so halfway through second grade, I left Summerdale Elementary School. And I moved to several different elementary schools, and then I ended up at Rogers Middle School, which is just down, was just down the road from here. And when I was in seventh grade, the first day of seventh grade, I show up to school, and I sit down in, I think it was algebra class, and across the room from me is Stephen. And he hadn't seen me since I was like seven. And at this point, I'm 11 or 12. And I actually can speak English and I've got some friends. And Stephen was the new kid. It was like nobody, he didn't know anybody, I could tell. And I was kind of, I was like not a good kid in seventh grade, but it was like the spirit of God in this moment, I went to Stephen, I introduced myself and he didn't recognize me. And I said, man, you don't remember, like I went to Summerdale Elementary School with you. And um, when I had nobody, you gave it all up for me. So um, at lunch, me and my friends hang out in this little part of the quad. Why don't you come hang with us? And he did. This is the way of Jesus. It is to let go of the stuff that drives you to climb and to linger back with those who've fallen behind. The fact that Jesus is the son of man means that though he could have stood and lived and lingered in elevated places far from us lowly humans, he chose not to ascend but to descend, to linger with us. But not to leave us there, but to eventually take us home. The worship team is going to come back up and we're going to sing and respond here in a moment. But as we do, um, I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, we're going to take communion. And you receive this communion element on the way in. When I think about the humility of Christ, the fact that Jesus was the Son of Man who came down for us, I think about communion, the bread and the cup. That Jesus gave his body and his blood so that you and I might have life. That Jesus gave up. He emptied himself and humbled himself. That Jesus gave up status and he leveraged his resources. And he used his influence to change everything for us. So for those of us in the room today, for those of us who are watching online, who feel unseen and unrecognized and unnoticed, may we remember that Christ, the Son of Man, even if no one else sees and recognizes and notice you, know this, Christ came down low enough to know you, to love you. He sees you, he notices you, he recognizes you. For those of us who are exhausted by the constant and strenuous climb up the corporate or career or social ladders, stepping on whoever we need to step on to get just a little higher, may we remember today that in God's kingdom, the way up is actually down. 
and that the path to greatness is humility. And for all those who follow Christ, may we, you and I, daily empty and humble ourselves, foregoing status, giving of our resources, using our influence for the good of others before ourselves, just as Christ did and does for us today. There is no greater reminder of this than the bread and the cup of communion. So I wanna invite you now, if you are a follower of Jesus, to just carefully peel off the top and we'll take the bread together, remembering that Christ on the night he was betrayed and crucified, broke the bread and he said, every time you gather, do this, take this in remembrance of me. So with gratitude in our hearts for the body of Christ broken, let's take the bread together. And then carefully peel off that other layer. And together for those of us who follow Christ, we remember that on the night that he was betrayed and crucified, Christ passed the cup. And he said, take this cup in remembrance of me. So with gratitude in our hearts for the blood shed on our behalf, let's take the cup together. 